Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. My name is Sabina Brennan and you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Thank you for joining me as I continue my chat with veteran broadcaster Mark Cagney, who shares his recent experience of stroke, his thoughts about the future and his reflections on his past. Mark in this episode speaks openly and candidly about his cocaine use and the straight talking that made him quit. So, Mark, you had, a, I was going to say, a huge life changing experience, but I guess it was a life threatening experience only a matter of weeks ago, really, isn't it? 8th of January. Months, 8th of January. OK. And is that date oh, yeah, emblazoned in your... That, that is now referred to as the event. Right. The event happened on uh, the 8th. Did it come out of the blue just totally. to start away? Totally. You had Completely. no sense of feeling unwell or anything? No, no, no. It was another normal day in lockdown. I had to go and um, get a few bits for uh, the dinner, which my daughter was cooking. And there was a particular type of noodles. She said they're in such and such an aisle. It's got a blue packet. So don't forget that. So I uh, I live in Sutton Park. It's on the north side of Dublin. It's less than half a mile to Sutton Cross, where the supermarket was. And between where I live, the park I, I live and Sutton Cross, there's a major turn off to go to Baldoyle and on out to Port Marnock and Malahide. It's kind of a major junction, T-junction. Got up to that and I started to hear or feel, I suppose, um, a buzzing or noise in my head, which was very strange. I was like, what the hell is that? You were driving? I was driving. Very slowly. The traffic was quite heavy, actually. And... Um, I was like, what the hell is going on? And, you know, sometimes I certainly, because of an underlying condition, sometimes get a kind of a sugar drop. Okay. And uh, the head can go a little fuzzy. And I thought, God, when was the last time I ate? Is that what's going on? And then this noise in my head seemed to increase in volume. Then I noticed I'm just at the front of the queue of traffic. I'm waiting for the junction to clear so I can go through. And I couldn't judge the distance between myself and the car in front of me. Okay. And I was going, has he gone through that junction yet? Is it all right for me to go? Because I knew I had a green light. Was that judgment or vision? It was, I, I would say, spatial awareness. Yeah. No, I could see, but I couldn't judge the distance. I couldn't yeah. tell yeah. whether I could go through or not. I went, this is really weird. And of course, the ringing had started in my head and it started going a bit fuzzy. And I didn't quite know what it was. So I just thought, well, go slow anyway. So I got a beep from somebody behind me. So I thought, OK, right. 
Well, I'll, I'll edge through because one of one of my pet bugbears is people who go into the square, go into junctions yeah. and block it. Um, anyway, traffic is moving quite slowly. And I just thought that's very weird. But then you just you concentrate in your driving and all the rest of it. Got up to Sutton Cross in two or three minutes, went in to what is now Super Value. So went in and as I parked the car, I knew that there was something very weird had gone on. I, I went, this is really odd. And the ringing in my head at this stage is now quite loud. And I have these parking sensors on the cars. Most most cars do these days. And I thought, am I too close? Is that what this noise is? Anyway, switched the car off, got out, looked at the car and it was assways in the car. I was like, what the hell have you done? This is bizarre. People will think you're drunk. It was really strange. And actually, the front of the car was too close to the bollard. So I thought, ah, oh, that's what that ringing noise is. Except, of course, it was still, still in my there. head. Yeah. <sighs> Fixed the car or righted it, went over to the entrance and they were only allowing a certain amount of people in at a time. So I thought, all right, OK. Stand in the queue, had my mask on and like observe social distancing. And they have these, you know, yellow discs on yeah, the ground yeah, so that you yeah. can measure where you are. And it's not normally something I would need to do, but I couldn't. The queue's moving quite slowly. Um, and I, should I move up? Am I too close? How far away am you I from the person? You just couldn't judge it. Yeah, you're couldn't brain. judge yeah, it. Yeah, I, yeah, and yeah. for the first time, I actually had to look at the ground to see, was I on my disc? I'm, so again, you're like, you know, you're thinking about, okay, what do I have to get? And all the other bits and pieces. And I hadn't written anything down, so I had to don't forget Sophie's um, noodles. And looking at, oh, is this, what's going on here? And... Why have I got to... Yeah, confused, I would yeah, obviously, in, yeah. in retrospect. Problems with visual-spatial processing, yeah. which is what you're describing, that's actually a sign of brain fog, so it, yeah. it's not working. My clot was um, in the Here. right rear occipital region, which is also the area that governs or controls that. Yes, um, exactly. So I, I go in, and again, if you know the supermarket, you, uh, you, you walk in through the entrance, and you take a left, pick up your basket, and you take a left to go around, Picked the basket up, put it on my left um, arm and then bumped into something. Knocked some stuff over and I thought, what the hell is wrong with you? Get it together. You know, again, that same thought, people think you're drunk. So that was fine. The lights were a little bright. It seemed to me they were a little bright. I knew where I needed to go, so I headed there almost immediately. I didn't have to pick up anything in the interim. I went over to that aisle where Sophie had said the noodles would be, but I still can't see them. And I thought, what is going on with me today? Get it together, Mark. And then there was one of the people working in the supermarket passed me by and I said, excuse me, I'm looking for noodles. Am I going blind or are they on the shelf or what? And she said, no, they're not there, but I'll go out the back and see if we have them in stock. She came back in two or three minutes time and she said, no, we don't have them, but we will have them tomorrow. So if you come back up tomorrow, and I went, oh, right, okay. And I turned to walk away from her and as I turned to walk away, the room did a 360 on me. Please, I was that quick. Yeah. I'm having a normal conversation with her. I said, thank you very much. I turn to walk away and then and I drop. I don't topple over yeah, or just teeter straight down uh, on my on knees, knees and dropped. The next thing I remember is a man in a suit leaning over me saying, sir, 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 are you all right? Um, uh, clearly not. <laughs> no. Is it your chest? Uh, and I went, no, it's not my chest. It's not. And I had been through heart attack protocols before. So I knew exactly what a heart attack is supposed to feel like. Yeah. In theory, I did. But there was none of that. I said, no, 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 no. This has nothing to do with my chest. This is in my head. That much I did know. But I didn't put two and two together. 
So at this stage, I'm aware that there's a lot of pain in my leg and my left arm where I'd obviously dropped and, and fallen quite heavily. Uh, so they get me up on a chair, get me some water. Um, can we call anybody for you? I said, well, my daughter's at home. She can come and get me. I took my phone out to ring her, but I couldn't focus on the phone. I couldn't. So I had to give him my code and he had to go into my contacts and get Sophie's number. She came up literally within 10 minutes and they bring me home. Um, oh my God, I just keep thinking you should have been in an ambulance at this stage. Well, there you go. Um, I probably should have. Sophie brings me home. My eldest son, her brother, is in the house or is coming in from work at that stage. And he straight away starts thinking about um, stroke. So he's looking at me and he's going through the fast protocol, yeah. seeing as my face, has it dropped or has there been any fall on it? Is there any paralysis? We He went through sort of the rudimentary bits of that. And she rings her mother. So I'm lying down in my man cave and... I'm a bit kind of like, what the hell is after happening here? But I feel okay. My heart, my my stomach is going because I'm going every second counts, yeah. and I'm going. Yeah. You could have passed away. Like you really, really well died. Part, let's part say that two um, is. I, she's sitting on the couch with me, and we're having a conversation. The television is on, but I can't really focus on it. It's a bit like sort of going on with my vision, and then the next thing is she's leaning over me, going, "Dad, dad, 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 are you okay?" And I went, yeah, 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 what's wrong with you? I'm just, I just must have nodded off. She said, no. You no. went again. She, she said, you went again. And if you had been standing up, you would have fallen again. At this stage, she's getting really worried. And, and they're ringing her mother. Her mother was having a conversation with her sister, Rita, whose son, sorry, son-in-law, Owen, is a registrar in James's. And um, she said, I'm going to ring Owen straight away. And she rings Owen straight away. And Owen said, don't wait Call no ambulance. ambulance, get him up to Beaumont straight away. And now this has taken a while. So we're, I think at about half six, is it where we're about half oh, five, yeah, six Well, it, it must be an hour after you had your first symptoms, are you? Yeah, In the car, I, like. I have no idea of the timeline. I can't right. remember. I, I went up around uh, half two, three, half three-ish, somewhere around that. Oh, so this is more. This is a few hours later. This would be about, it's nearly two hours. Later. Oh my God. Uh, anyway, I get up to Beaumont. I explain what's gone on. I'm put in the line in the queue. Seen very quickly because their COVID protocols have actually streamlined everything up yeah. there. So I'm in and I'm triaged within three hours. By nine o'clock I'm seen and they're beginning to talk about a thing called Meniere's disease. Okay. Which is a balance thing. They've uh, organised uh, CT scans which are done and at this stage now I'm very tired. I'm really tired and exhausted and you know quite frightened because I don't know what the hell is going on and they don't seem to know what's going on either also I'm in Beaumont where you know with all due respect to them COVID is rife and rampant and um, it's the last place I want to be but also Beaumont is the best place to oh, be for, for neurology. neurology yeah see I have a personal hang up about Beaumont which is because the last time I was in Beaumont I was there to um, with Anne right. uh, and I hadn't been back in Beaumont for 30 years um, I just I didn't want to go back there I had okay. really bad memories um, painful memories not bad memories the staff were brilliant but thankfully I never needed to go back there and I didn't want to go back there I'd yeah. been in the Beaumont private already but not in the main hospital So that's scary on top of everything the last uh, yeah, time you're there you're, it did. you know it's when Anne dies and, and, and then you're in there and, and you're, the there's something going on in your head and yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah. So um, I was in a, in a ward fairly quickly on, on, on a chair and then I was in a bed by about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning 
following morning, the ED consultants come around and they say, one of the CT scans has shown a clot in your lung, um, which is otherwise known as a pulmonary embolism. And I went, right, okay. Um, is that serious? Well, yeah, it could have killed you, um, but it didn't. It's a small one and it's at the extremity of one of your lungs. So you got very lucky. But the symptoms you described to us do not tally with, with a pulmonary yeah. embolism. So he said, I'm going to order a brain CT, which we will do today. And they did that later on that day and then came back to me and said, uh, yeah, you've had a brain clot. You've had a, an acute ischemic stroke in the right nope, rear occipital That's right, maiden, at the, the, the back of your yeah, head. and Which um, would explain it. Uh, yeah. So I said, hang on a second. So initially it's, I have a day thinking I've had a pulmonary embolism and I got really lucky. Now you're telling me I've had a, a stroke as well. And said so two clots, one in your head and one in your lung. Thankfully, it was a small clot in a big vessel. So we'll have you on blood thinners and we'll start all of that and then you'll deal with Dr. Craig, who's the stroke specialist. This was the ED specialist who had yeah. consulted and come back up to me. So there we were and it just went from there. Now, And you're on your own in the hospital yeah. bed when you hear all this yeah, yeah. And, and how did you feel? Um, I was just uh, shocked and, yeah. uh, you know, what the hell is going on? Um, no warning um, Well, you don't get them. You know, I'm healthy as a horse I had prior to lockdown been a gym bunny for 30 years. Done everything right. I stopped smoking 30 years ago. I don't drink. Haven't done drugs in 30 odd years or anything like that. In other words, I hadn't been bold. Um, I led a kind of almost exemplary monk's life. Trained hard, you know, worked hard, kept myself fit, ate well. My wife's a Pilates teacher, instructor. You know, we're conscious of that in the house. Um, So would have done everything right. And when they were giving me the a recovery plan afterwards, I had said to them, look. I'm already doing all I've this. I've been doing this for 30 years. Um, I live like a monk, go to bed early, get up very early, but, you know, it's all managed properly. And I've kind of read about the best way to manage it and what I should be doing right. Yeah, so for 20 years, you've been getting up at longer. four o'clock in the morning or longer, yeah. But would you go to bed very early in the evening? Would I you be getting, normally, would have I would been getting bed, your seven or eight hours sleep? No, I'd go to bed around nine, read for a bit, uh, light out by 10 and then up at three o'clock. So you're still probably not getting a full night's sleep even though well, you're I'd managing it better than other people. get an hour two in the afternoon people. as well. Right, so yeah. you'd nap. Oh, that's okay because that's the perfect way to manage it, you Again, know. Again, I would get that, what I would call that mid-afternoon slump or drop. Yeah, but the argument is, you know, and there's some cultures still do it, you know. Um, the Siesta. argument is, yeah, well, the argument is that we can't sleep in two periods yeah. and I often say that to people. Look, if you are struggling at night time, have a nap in the early afternoon so mm-hmm. that you get your required sleep in two doses rather than one dose. And actually, there was a study done in um, Greece and I'm going to come back to that uh, where they always had siestas but then with the way things changed over time and so the businesses started to have to stay open during the siesta to compete and they had an increase in heart attack and stroke amongst the men. So I'm just wondering did you stop having your nap when you retired? Well let, let me uh, No, I'm not I'm not diagnosing. <laughs> this is me no, just first going. and foremost, I didn't retire. <laughs> well, no, sorry. I beg your pardon. No, the contract. No, no, pardon. no, you're right. But actually that, one of the one of the banes of my life for the last two years has been people going, Oh, how are you enjoying retirement? And I'm going, I'm not retired. I am so sorry no, I said that. That, I that was the perception uh, out there and it was just one of those things, listen, I'm not finished yet. I'm not I'm not <laughs> retired. But yeah, it took me a long time to stop waking up at three o'clock in the morning. 
and to feel sleep to kind of normalise or regularise my To circadian. change your sleeping habits. Well, my circadian rhythm would have been very different to most people's yes. because of the hours I was I was working. And, you know, when you do that for 20 years, it becomes hardwired in your system. So it took, it took a long time for me to break that. Um, I don't wake at three in the morning anymore, which I used to do. I had my own personal inbuilt alarm clock. That, But I will wake at around six. That's okay, though. I no, that's say. okay. And then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll toss and turn for a little while. But after that, I have to get up. Mm. Um, I'll still go to bed reasonably early and read because I, I enjoy reading in bed. So I suppose, yeah, a year later, I had had I got it back to normal? I don't know. Would, would it be as close or as near normal as I'm ever going to get it, mm. given. From very early on, I worked very late at night. Mm. So for years, I would work until two, three, four o'clock in the morning come home, be wired so you wouldn't go to bed until maybe four or five and then you'd get up around lunchtime maybe shortly after lunchtime and, you know, lunchtime would be your breakfast, your evening meal, your tea time meal would be your lunch and then I would go to work in the evenings. Um, So I have never had what people would call normal nine to five Mm. or eight to four And then you switch from that to the reverse. Well, the morning show wreaked havoc on all of our lifestyles and life cycles. I remember about two or three months in when we started was it started in 99 I remember seeing coming out of makeup one morning uh, at about half past six and uh, Amanda Byram who was my first television wife my first partner she was standing by the water cooler and she was I could see her shoulders heaving and she was obviously upset and I went up to her and I went what's wrong with you lovey and she said, I don't know. I just feel awful. I was like, what? She said, I just feel so depressed. Oh, dear. <laughs> and and she, then she started me and I, I was going, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> so I started to go. And then Alan Hughes arrives along and he gives out to me. He said, what did you do to her? Why are you making her cry? <laughs> I said, I didn't. She's just depressed and now I'm feeling upset. And then he started as well. And we noticed that we were all feeling this awful kind of jet lag stroke depression. Yeah. Subsequently, you, you know, when you learn a bit about sleep patterns and all the rest of it, okay, you're thrown into this, you know, getting up at three or four o'clock in the morning and it's wreaking havoc with your life and, and with your metabolism. With your body, and your yeah, body yeah, and, yeah. And your, you know, your And your brain, yeah. And your rhythms. And you can do it for a while and then your body or your mind or a combination of both goes, okay, this isn't funny anymore. Stop this yeah. now, right? You're not supposed to be doing this. This is not normal. It's not natural. But of course, like three months on, we were still doing it. The difference between myself and Alan and Amanda was they were still trying to have a kind of a normal life. Right. So they were trying to balance doing this and living a normal life or having a life outside of it. I didn't. I committed. Um, my, My father was a musician and he used to say, look, the gig is when the gig is. If you don't like it, don't do it. If you are going to do it, don't complain about it. So I just thought, you know what, this will kill me unless I commit to it. And I'm very disciplined about things yeah. like that, right? It kind of fitted in to my life. I had, st- had young kids at the time, so everybody went to bed reasonably early. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't as big a disruption to our life as it would have been to say theirs. I mean, they were both young They and were single, single yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah, they wanted to be going out at night exactly. when everyone else so, was going out and you can't do that. And I learned uh, as, as time went on that it took, and that's one of the reasons I, I used to take a month off every year. I took August off. And I, I said, right, OK, the only way I'm going to have any kind of normality with family and have a holiday and all the rest of it is that if I take a month, I can take a week or 10 days to decompress, ease myself out of it gradually, have a kind of a normal 
week to 10 days in the middle And then another of it. week to ease back in. And then yeah, another week very, to ease yeah. back in. Um, otherwise, this will, like something's got to give here and it's not going to work. So the only way to do it was to be absolutely single-mindedly tunnel vision focused on this is life for as long as it lasts. Now, you have to bear in mind, we only thought we'd get maybe a year or two yeah. years out of it. Never in a million years did anybody expect it was going to last for 20 years. But then that became life. That became the lifestyle. Mm. And, you know, people who, who would have known me through that period would know that after a while they would just stop asking me to, you know, oh, I'll meet you in town or look, there's a show on or an opening yeah. night. And I would I would get invitations all the time to opening nights, um, you know, previews and stuff like that. And I'd say, look, sorry, I can't. Prior commitments. I'm, I'm up at three o'clock in the morning. If it involved anything after five or six o'clock in the evening, I wouldn't go. I'd just say, look, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Mm. And oh, for God's sake, you know, you have to have a life. And I'm going, well... I do have a life. This is my job. And, and this I loved is, it. And, yeah. and, but, but, and and if you want to stay alive, you have to, you yeah. you know, that's a strain on your on your body and your system. So you have well, to kind of counteract. I, I, you know, in the earlier part of my life, I did all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, the going out and the going to things and the doing this and the doing that and all the rest. I've been there, done that. And yes, you missed out on. The, I, the thing I actually missed out about most was not so much the events. Every now and again, somebody you hadn't seen for a long time would come into town midweek and, you know, they'd be doing whatever it was. I said, oh, look, I'll meet you afterwards. Um, and I go, well, I can meet you in the afternoon. Oh, well, no, come on, you look, I, we'll go and we'll have a nice dinner and we'll have a few. Uh, well, I didn't drink, but, you know, we'll have a chat and we'll have a catch up. And I, I know you're up early in the morning, but I'll have you home by 10 or 11. And I'm going, well, actually, I go back to work at six o'clock in the evening. So uh, my routine would have been um, home, lunchtime, gym in the afternoon, uh, sleep for about an hour or two, dinner at half five half six, start work again and then work until nine-ish. They're there. Then go shower, clean myself out, get my clothes ready for the following morning, yeah. bed. Yeah. And that was the routine and it really didn't alter or... You, you, you just said a few times there you don't drink. Did you never drink? I mean, I know that I never you liked dabbled it. in drugs but you didn't I never liked drink. alcohol which is why I dabbled in drugs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I hated the effect of alcohol. I mean, I have been drunk, of course uh, and I have been enjoyably drunk but alcohol for me was beyond a certain point was a complete lack of control. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you can't That's speak, it. it. Yeah, yeah. It switches off properly. your frontal lobes. That's it. <laughs> yeah, you know, things don't work properly. You know, your, your lips go numb. You know, you can't pee straight. You know, yeah, you, yeah. it's just, oh, I can't be doing with it. And I didn't yeah. like it and I didn't like what it did to people. Whereas, Unfortunately, cocaine uh, gives you the... Um, well, the reverse I, feeling gives you a feeling that you're completely in control and yeah. superior probably. Well, it makes you think you're God and everybody else is little people and then yeah. you start treating them like little people and it turns you into a horrible person. Um, my main drug of choice was um, grass or hash. I dived into uh, cocaine at one stage quite heavily for a couple of years um, because I was so busy that I needed something to keep me going and I had done quite a lot of speed when I was younger because it was cheap and was yeah. all we could afford um, but I hated what it did to me it was just uh, you know you'd have the judders all the time you'd be literally vibrating and grinding your teeth and it just I, I couldn't be doing with that um, I understand why people call coke uh, champagne but it's an insidious pernicious drug um, particularly how it alters your perception of yourself and makes you think that you're God Oh, but it also makes you feel very separate to other people. And if you're yeah. somebody who likes connection, it's a sort of an isolating 
Yeah. No. Um, yeah. Well, it, ultimately, it does that. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you know, you're in trouble when you're sitting wherever it is, alone in the middle of the night or early morning on your own, looking at it, going, "Oh, I better do that because it's going to melt." Uh, <gasps> you know. And then when it goes, you go, "Oh God, what am I going to do with it tomorrow?" And you go, well, "Is there anybody up and I can go and um, get some more and get some more?" Um, I would not say I was an, an addict, although I have an addicted personality because I don't like anything having that kind of control over me. Mm. But it did get to a point where it was just stupid. And and did you just, were you just able to stop? Yeah, I had, um, at, at one stage, everything closed up. You know, I was like, oh. <laughs> and I'd had a couple of gigs that I'd, I'd been gigging in the west of Ireland and then I had to come back. In. See, I, I had radio career going on. I was gigging. I had I was doing a lot of voiceovers. So I could be up early in the morning. I might have come back from Connemara or something on Sunday night. I would have had a gig in one of the recording studios or a couple of gigs. And then I would have had to go and do my, my own uh, radio stuff. You see, with me, I bought into this is rock and roll, you know, or yeah, this is as close yeah. to rock and roll as I'm going to get. And this is what you use. This is what you do, yeah. To keep going, to keep you there. Um, forgetting, of course, that you, you never and had And we're going back quite a bit in time. Oh, this is 35 this. years ago. And a lot of people, I think, were doing cocaine in Ireland back then. Well, it was more prevalent than people knew. Yeah, yeah. All sorts of levels when, of society. You know, it wasn't just, you know, vagabonds in music or entertainment. Um, it was everywhere. Law, politics. Yeah. But anyway. What was admirable was, yeah, people who were doing it knew that people were doing it. But I think we have a funny press in Ireland. You know, they're quite protective of our celebrities to a certain extent because there's lots of celebrities who don't get written about at all about things that they're doing or, or what they're doing. Well, a lot of the people in the press were doing it too. Yes, yes. <laughs> so yes. we were all this, I won't say media entertainment elite. Or, well, we probably would have thought of ourselves as that, right? But we were all part of this kind of hip trendy Click, happening yeah, 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 the, yeah you know the shakers and the movers and different the to everybody else <clears throat> and, and that's what coke does is it makes you feel different oh, to everybody it, else yeah. it's rather interesting people talk about drug use in Ireland in the sense of it affecting you know they tend to think of heroin uh, users and people that we do see on the streets and that it's a you know people from a lower uh, economic status and this is a poor people's thing look I grew up in Clontarf a nice middle class neighbourhood I would have been exposed to drugs from about the age of 13 and that's going back to kind of 1970 something before it was anywhere so before drugs hit into that element of mm. society it was a much bigger problem in middle class society in but a different Sabrina, way. human beings have been finding ways <clears throat> of escaping their reality. Yeah. So it, it is something in human beings that either seeks it or needs it or wants it or certainly, here's where I think the hypocrisy is, we enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, alcohol is the most obvious one. We enjoy getting out of our own heads mm. for a while. Now, obviously, if you do it too often, it becomes a problem. But it is universal. Mm. And people talk about, whoa, why do you do drugs? Why do you do drugs? I'll tell you why. Because initially you enjoy them. You like the feeling. Mm. You like what it does. Now, I never liked alcohol. I didn't like what that mm. did to me. But I loved a joint. But, I loved the fact that it relaxed me. Yeah, it's very... And, that, and it seemed to enhance my enjoyment of music and various other bits and pieces of things that I enjoyed to do. It was an enhancer. Now, obviously, the more and more you do it, then you do stop enjoying it. And if you're really unlucky... You don't stop enjoying it until it's too late. and you. But part of the problem with that is, and I do think society is, has double standards. 
Part of the biggest problems around drug use is the cost of the drugs. And so therefore, then people engage in activities that start to destroy their lives because they're either having to steal or they can't pay the mortgage or, you know, they're lying and hiding, etc. Now, alcohol is as harmful, like it really is. Alcohol is far more damage in this country. Far more damage from loads of perspectives. You know, you never hear anyone being beaten up by their husband who smoked a joint, you know, uh, whereas that happens frequently yeah. with alcohol abuse but it's condoned and a lot of people are allowed to make a lot of money out gambling. of alcohol and gambling is another gambling um, if you look in, in, we have a very very high rate compared to other countries yeah. in terms of gambling in Islam gambling is considered to be worse it is considered to be the most pernicious and insidious of all addictions right because you will sell everything mm-hmm. and everyone now alcoholics and addicts will do the same thing right mm-hmm. But you know there's a problem because of what they're doing to themselves physically. You can see the manifestation of it. With gambling, you would never know mm-hmm. until it's too late. Yeah. And, you know, you, you find that your but house is gone, yeah. that your kids don't have a roof over their head anymore because it's all been sold out from underneath them. There is a huge hypocrisy about addictions and addictive behaviour. It usually involves something that's an enjoyable pursuit initially. Yeah. Well, you're getting uh, a um, dopamine rush. Yeah. You know, and what, what, what we do as a society is, is that we go, no, 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 don't, this is bad for you. This is bad for you. This will, you know, drugs will kill you. It'll ruin your life and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That then feeds into the, the generation gap, which is you've got olders, elders, better saying, no, 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 finger wagging, even though they're doing it themselves or doing some of it themselves. And then the generation coming up goes, because as soon as you lay the law down and, and, and make it something that they shouldn't do, they want they to want try to it. it. Obviously, yeah. it's human nature. They try it and then they go, and because initially it is enjoyable, they go, you lied. Mm-hmm. You just want to keep this for yourself. And and look, when you're 14, 15, 16 teenager, you know, you don't necessarily think straight about these things. You just go, well, why don't, don't you tell me what to do? Because you're, you know, flexing your muscles and trying to um, create your own and form your own identity and make your own way in the world. So I'm not going to be told what to do. I don't want to live my life like you. I don't believe in the same things that you do. You're telling me this is bad for me. I've tried. It was great. Mm-hmm. No, it was great the first time or the second time or the third time. But, you know, by time number so 50 need, then... You, you, yeah, and you need more and more to get the same hit and rush that you got the first exactly, time. Right. And, and and that, that applies. I mean, I, I think you're dead right. I should go back to what we, I'm really curious to know, because you seriously did go into, you know, problem spaces if, as as you said earlier, you were all blocked up pointing around your nasal area. Well, I tried to clear it and it all, basically the inside of my nose came out of my oh, hand. Yeah. And uh, I had to go and see a doctor. And the doctor, God bless him, uh, he said, well, uh, Mr. Cagney, it seems to me uh, that you must be a reasonably intelligent human being to achieve what you've achieved in your professional life. Um, however, what you're doing here is not the act of an um, intelligent human being. It is, in my um, medical uh, opinion, the act of a fucking idiot. <laughs> I went, whoa, I'm paying you how much to tell me this? He said, exactly. <laughs> you, you don't need me to tell you this is stupid. You can see it for... But I, by, by the reaction and look on your face, young. it actually really worked though oh, for you, I, did it? I was... Don't tell Mark Cagney he's a, a fucking idiot. Completely <laughs> affronted and insulted and indignant and mortified. In he one. had one shot straight to the heart and I went, oh, right, okay. And I just went. Now, life had changed. You know, I was going to become a father. I was getting another shot at life. 
And also, I had cleaned up a bit before that, but I had fallen off the wagon after Anne died. And um, I just went, what, what, what are you, oh, what are you doing to yourself? Um, and I did go mad after she died and I en- ended up um, on the continent and ended up in Berlin uh, doing really stupid stuff. And I remember one of the people who was there with me said, right, are you, uh, are you finished trying to kill yourself now? Because actually, you know what, you're in one of the greatest cities in the world. Would you like to go and see some of it? And it's a bit, again, it's like slap in the face, like cop yourself on you, gobshite. You know, you talk about that you were taking drugs, you know, and everyone was taking it and, you know, this but clique like we were in. But I'd, then I'd, you were also cleaned up a little bit and uh, I had stopped because, you know, I just, I'd had that conversation uh, with the doctor. Um, I did regress after Anne died for a bit, very short while. Now you regressed after she died. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I, I went mad because I just yeah. thought, well, what's the point? There's no point. Well, you do say in an interview I read and I thought it was very astute, grief is a form of madness. Oh, You know, and in a way it is. It's, well, I mean, it's just, how do you cope when, you know, someone dies? For anybody who's listening to this and who has to go through that or anybody who has somebody who's going through that, you're all great and you're brilliant for a month, for six weeks. And then you go on about your lives because that's life. You have to do that. The person that you're worried about is in an emotional coma. If they were to suffer the physical equivalent of the emotional damage that they've gone through, the loss, etc., they would be in a coma for months. Mm-hmm. So everybody is great. You're very solicitous. You're caring and you're, you're, you're watching people and you're minding them. You're making sure they're okay and da, 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 da. And then a month, six weeks, two months later, you're gone mm-hmm. because you've got to go back to your life. And then they're left there, still in the coma. And they gradually come out of it. And it could take months. Some some people never actually come out of mm. it. In my case, that went on for about three months. I even went back to work. Yeah. But I got left there on my own. Everybody else moved I, on. I often... I was stuck. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I went mad. I had weeks where I didn't sleep properly. Mm. Now, sleep deprivation is one of the ways they drive you mad. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. Sleep deprivation, everything stops working. And also what happens is your amygdala goes on high alert. Yeah. You start to be paranoid. You'll see threats everywhere. I was uh, having and, hallucinations and in the daytime. I thought really? I saw her. I thought it was all right. a bad joke. I thought, you know what? I don't know what it is I've done. You know, I, look, I'm, I'm a gobshite. I make mistakes. I do stupid things and some of them aren't very nice. And, you know, I need to be punished for them. OK, I get all of that right, right. But God, I, there's I, the I, Catholic I, guilt. Like, I, I mean, it just, it, it's mad. It's that doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry, sense. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I've learned my lesson. Yeah, okay, now, now, bring her back. back. Come back, please. Um, I remember on two occasions thinking I saw her in the street. Oh, now, by the way, I wasn't doing any drugs at this time. Yeah, this yeah, is now yeah, just yeah. sleep deprivation, madness, grief, But I think that exhaustion. happens with grief. I mean, I remember thinking I saw my dad. Like, and, yeah. and it's very different to lose. Did you go up and tap the person on the shoulder? No, did I you? Did. did you? Oh God, I'm sorry. I'm so oh, sorry. I thought you were somebody thing. else. You were just in another madness. place. Yeah. It was absolute madness. But this is one of the things that if you've got somebody in your life who's going through a, that kind of loss, by the time you've started to move on, one thing I will never say to anybody who's going through that is time is a great healer. Because yeah. I got to the point where the next person who says that to me, I'm going to take a baseball bat to them. Yeah. Um, oh, you'd be great. Time is a great healer. See, and I they're, think they're doing this. And by the way, it is a long period of time for them because they're not going through it. They're watching you go through it, right? So a month, six weeks, two months later, yeah, um, listen, I won't call around this weekend because I've got stuff to do. And because they've got a partner and, and somebody else in their life saying, listen, for God's sake, you know, he needs to get on with his life. Time's a great healer. 
by the time they've decided that you don't need to be watched or minded anymore, you're only now waking up because you've been in this coma. You haven't felt any of that. It's all been a haze. It's all been a blur. So you wake up out of that. They've moved on or gone on. Not all of them, but, you know, the vast majority. And then you're gone. What the hell's happened in my life? Where's she gone? It's about, is it a joke? Is she, is she really gone? No, yeah. no, no. What did I do? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please come back. Yeah. You know, whatever it is I need to do, just make this right. And okay, the joke has gone on too long now. Right. No, 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 It's no. really back to that childhood thing, isn't it? It's Please, mommy, please, mommy, I won't do it again. I won't yeah, do it yeah. again. Don't take that away. Don't take that away. Please, mommy, don't. You know, except it is that real. Except that you're 35 years of age. Yeah, you're still very young. And I think, you know, I have thankfully never f- experienced inappropriate loss and by that I mean I've lost my mother and my father that is the way of life yeah, yeah. of the, the world the natural order that is the natural order of things I do not know and I do know two people who have lost children and I do not know how anybody gets out the other side of that and mm. I think like you've just said there I don't think you ever get out the other side of that I have also never lost a partner, which is a very different thing. And I think also it must be a very different thing to lose a partner young than after you've lived life together. So I think there are, it's, it sounds awful to say it, but there are degrees of bereavement. Well, when you're the one who has to switch off the machine yeah. or give the permission to do that and you're, you're doing this for a person who's never lost a, a medical stroke, physical battle in their life. Even though you know you've been told by everybody she's gone. There's no coming back from this. But you go, this person, this is Mike Tyson. This is she's never lost in her life, you know. And and but look, no, you have to. So even So you do that and then you kinda go, God, what did I do? Could could what was there any possibility? Oh, did you, could a did miracle you, did have happened? You, did you have that? Did you oh, have that course. sense? Oh Absolutely. yeah, okay, yeah. Like what 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 uh, and even though you know, it was... Well, you don't You don't believe in miracles, do you? Not in the Catholic sense. Okay. I believe that... You believe in beating the odds, maybe. I believe extraordinary things can happen. And okay. I, I believe extraordinary people can do extraordinary things that people... Human, human beings are, you know, of all of the creatures on the planet, we are the most complex, we're the most destructive, we're the most fascinating and we're mm. the most extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, Anne was an extraordinary woman. Yeah. You know, you had met her from a childhood. 19. She had been beating the odds. Yeah. And can I ask you as well, because, you know, you were very young when you met and married each other. And a lot of young men would have walked away from a woman who had a medical history yeah. that she had. You know, a lot of men would have. They would have kind of just... Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of women would, you know, kind of might do the yeah. reverse because it's... God, every word I try to, to use for it is so wrong because you did what's right. You saw the person rather than her, you know, and yeah. you fell in love with the person. But did it ever, ever enter your head that her life would be threatened in any way by what she had? Or was that just something you were too young to kind of see in any real concrete way? Uh, that's a very good question. I mean, because I'm, I'm actually very analytical. Uh, I, I tend to overthink things, chess player. Um, so even back then. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, if I, was, if, I, if, I, if I was to apply the kind of logic and analysis to my personal life that I would have, to the kind of career path I was trying to map out, I would have looked at it and said, chances of her living beyond 35 are probably slim to none. Mm. But you don't think about that. You just dived in, not, not in the moment, living, yeah. Oh, see, I I was fascinated by her. Mm. Um, obsessed isn't the right word, but yeah. oh, and, and I want to be careful with this because anything I say about that will be in comparison to my next relationship and comparisons are odious. They're so completely different. But I don't think they, I, I don't think they have to yeah, be well, comparisons. I, I was my soulmate. Yeah, yeah. And so um, um, Audrey and I had had other lives by the time we got to that. So it was a, it was a different kind of relationship and a different kind of love. But Anne was just, I was obsessed with her. Um, but in a, in a healthy way, not in a kind of a jealous way. But in know. an all-consuming way? Well, I from I, a romantic side of things. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. you were very career oriented. Let me ask you a question. Well. Go back to your original question. I never imagined my life without her. Okay. Consequently, when she wasn't there anymore, I was unhinged, unmanned, rudderless. I was utterly bereft. I had no idea what I was going to do or indeed why I should bother doing anything because mm. I didn't have the person who... A lot of what I did... Well, yeah, yeah, of course it was personal ambition, but after a while it wasn't about that. It was about... I have to, I have, to have someone to do it for. I mm. have to... Because I'm incredibly arrogant in lots of ways about what I can... what I'm capable of. I'm, I, I know... How do I say this without sounding like a complete tosser? I know how good I am. At what I do. Mm-hmm. I know how much work and effort I put into it. That's a very Irish thing that, you know, you can't say how good you are. You are. You're just yeah. stating a fact. Um, and I know how smart I am. Mm-hmm. Um, not genius, but smart, cunning, clever. Can read, sign, plot my way through things, know the way the wind is blowing. And more importantly, I know when to duck. I've always known when to duck. Um, okay. You know, see it coming and get out of the way. But because I know that and I'm aware that a lot of stuff can come quite easily to me. I get stuff quickly. Mm-hmm. So I don't have anything to prove to people. It's not, look at how great I am. And, and constantly showing it to people. It's like, I kind of know. I don't need to show you. And if you can't recognise it, well, then you're an idiot. So fuck off. Yeah. 
No, that you know what I mean. That's, yeah, no, it's no, a, no, no, I it's, don't. It's, it's not arrogance. It's just kind of cut and dried. That's just the way it is. Yeah, and if yeah. you don't get that, well, then it's just fact. I, I, it's just we're a bit screwed up in <coughs> Ireland that you know if you say anything about what yeah. you're good at, it's you're too big for your boots and you'd be slapped down. But it's just fact. Well, no, but equally well, I recognise people who have far more ability than I do. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, admire them for it rather than resent them for it. Those yeah. are the kind of people I'd like to be around because... You can learn from people. Absolutely, yeah. they'll make me better. Yeah, or, exactly. or I'll have to work harder to stay with yeah. them, right? Yeah. Um, but but I don't suffer fools gladly and I don't have much time for stupidity, even though I've done incredibly stupid things myself. Mind you, once it's pointed out, I stop because I go, oh God, you're doing a deep dive on me here. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making you... Well, this, that's, this is stuff I'd never... I wouldn't even say this at home. I think this kind of stuff is so helpful for people. You can be sure if you felt it, many other people have felt well, and, and lived the through thing these things. The other thing that I... Grief and loss is a unique experience. It's as different as a fingerprint. This is as different as my fingerprint is from yours. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that we all have fingerprints. Mm. So it's actually universal as well. Mm. Um, and you think that this has only ever happened to you and only ever will happen to you. Nobody knows how you're, you're, you're feeling. Nobody knows what you're going through. And then you read Joan Didion, your magical thinking, and you realise we've all gone through it, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I'm not the only person who three, four, five, six months after, you know, the love of his life died, walked up and tapped somebody on the shoulder because mm. they thought it was them. Yeah, yeah. I'm not the only person who thought it was a bad joke. Yeah. Um, to punish them for because they hadn't been a nice person or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, uh, the bad dream thing, like I honestly think an awful lot of it is your brain trying to make sense, try, you know, like it's trauma. And yeah. you said one interesting thing in an interview I read that you just felt that you couldn't grieve here because obviously you were a public persona. And well, there's a goldfish bowl. Yeah, goldfish People are looking bowl. at you all the time. Like, How is he? What, what's he going to do? Is he all right? How's he yeah. behaving? Is he strange? Is he just stop looking at me? So in one way, then it was good that someone says, right, get out of here. You need time out and we're going to travel. But yeah. obviously, in another way, that was probably permission to fall off the wagon in terms of drug use. Yeah. Well, just, um, but just a bit of both. But maybe behavior. you just needed to do that. You, what is it they say about addicts? You need to hit rock bottom. Huh? You need to hit rock bottom. Yeah. Um, and and that was my version of rock bottom, I suppose. And then the only way is up. Mm. But again, I mean, it's, it has to be in me as well. But um, the shining example of Anne's life was, yeah, you never give up. Mm. Like, while you, while you breathe, you hope. Ever, never, ever, 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 ever give up. Mm. And it would have been an awful stain on her memory to give in and to give up. Mm. Because this is somebody who had fought all her life for her life and um, how could you live with that and learn that lesson and then throw that lesson away you couldn't do it you couldn't do yeah, it it would have been it, it would have dishonoured her memory I think that's a really important thing because I think a lot of people experiencing that kind of loss and grief feel there is no point in going on and sadly some people do choose to end yeah. their own life be that actually literally and physically taking their own life. Well, I mean, I got to or, that point. I got to the yeah. point of, well, what's the point? Yeah. There's, I have nobody to do this for. I don't actually care enough about myself to do it. And I'm not going to do it to prove to anybody that, because I couldn't care less about what, the, I don't care what people think about me. I cared about what she thought and she was my reason. 
um, uh, for doing it. And in, in some senses, a lot of my self-esteem was directly um, related to what she felt about me. So if this person feels um, good about me, loves me, thinks I'm worth it, then I'm worth it. If that person isn't there, then... She was so entwined in your sense of who you were Absolutely. that then you lost the point. yourself. The purpose. Um, but she also got so inside your head that she gave you that don't give up, don't take your own life, don't do this. Well, herself and the lady who kind of took me in hand when I left home was my Aunt Mary, who was a remarkable woman. But uh, she gave me a mantra, which was Dumb Spiro Sparrow. And anybody who knows me will have heard me um, use that. It's, I have a couple of mantras in life. Dumb Spiro Sparrow is While I Breathe, I Hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one which I got from my grandfather and which was passed on to my father as well uh, and was particularly applicable to him as a musician was Don't worry about being popular, worry about being good because if you're good, you'll always work. Okay. So keep your eye on the ball. Why are you doing this? Are you doing it because you want it to be good or you want to be good at it or are you doing it because you want people to like you? Yeah. I've never actually, and people would say, ah, this is ridiculous, but I've never actually cared about being popular. But you see, I think that's something that takes a lot of us a long time to learn for an awful lot of us that comes with maturity, you know, and kind of realising. And we find ourselves doing a lot of stuff and it's only in later life you realise, why did I do that? I did that because other people, you know, said this or that. Or, being a pleaser. Uh, yeah, people pleaser or, or, or whatever. So I, I, I think that's fabulous. But we still need somebody for whom we can reflect our life back at it has that's what you're talking about there's no joy in something amazing happening if you can't tell someone about it and I don't mean broadcast to the world that's one kind but you had found someone for whom you could say Anne I did it there's a handful of people in my life whose approval is important to me yeah other than those people doesn't the rest of it doesn't matter which is an extraordinary thing for a broadcaster who relies on kind of yeah public popularity or, or the whims of the public But I think that's what separates out, you know, really, really good broadcasters is that they are just themselves. You can see it, you know, you can see some broadcasters and they want to be shocking and they do things and it has to be the next level and the next level. And then actually for me and my preference and the people that I would respect in broadcasting, they are just themselves. They are just being and actually... Because of that, people are very astute. You know, you can tell when someone's, Mm. you can kind of get that sense of, you know, someone's being real. You're not supposed to, you're supposed to like or appreciate what it is I'm doing. Mm. Not necessarily me. I'm not supposed to be the story. Mm -hmm. And chasing public approval, that way madness lies Mm. because it can turn like that. So, in a way, Anne saved you from yourself and helped pull you up, you know, from that depths of despair. Was there, because I'm interested in how you actually survived and came out. Was it other people that helped then as well? Yeah, Audrey. Right. Funny enough, I had lost one or two people of my original sort of social circle in Cork. But I didn't know that many people who had died that young in Dublin. And um, Audrey, who worked in 98 at the time. So 98 is the radio station Classic that you were working yeah. yeah. I was working for Dennis O'Brien there at the time and she had lost her brother Jared in a motorbike accident. So she had sort of personal experience and they were very close. Um, she has um, three sisters and uh, two had, she has three sisters 
uh, Marion Jean and Rita and an older brother, brother Thomas and Jared. But she and Jared were very close. And he was killed as a result of a motorbike accident. It was devastating. But she had some understanding of that loss. And I remember distinctly her saying two things. One is the Shawshank um, quote, which is, look, get busy living or get busy dying. But the, the first one was, she said, look, you're wandering around like you've got a cut finger with a plaster on it. She said, you, you need to start dealing with that or you're going to go mad. Get busy living or get busy dying. And then she and a couple of people, um, again, like John Marion and um, my brother-in-law, Eric, and various people like that, just kept an eye on me. They were still there after the mm. three-month fog had lifted, you know. And I was minded and I was watched. And they kind of went, OK, now he's beginning to wake up. Now he's actually, the, f- the full impact, the reality of mm. what's happened is going to hit. And I, now is when the shit is really going to, yeah. to happen, right? I think from a societal perspective, we have it all wrong. You know, people come and they flock around you in that period when somebody has just died and actually put pressure on you. You know, I mean, I remember having to go into town and buy extra teapots and, you know, buy clothes for the funeral and dress my kids and have hundreds of people back to the house. And and then suddenly I'm back at work and I'm going to go, my dad just died suddenly. I haven't stopped no. for a minute. And Butcher, didn't we give him a great send off? Yeah, no, no, it's no. It's like the job is done. Yeah, yeah, but and it's then it's two, it's three not. Months later, when you wake up and you go, what yeah, the hell yeah, and grief is a long journey. It's a very long journey. It is. So anyway, so Audrey helped, and then this common experience through grief then actually yeah. brought you together, and something else blossomed. And I read again one of your interviews and it really jumped out at me and it was you said I've met two women in my life and I married both of them. Yeah. So I've fallen in love twice. That's it. That's the line. And, I got it wrong. But I'm yeah. not. I'm, well, no, no, no. I met two women. I married both of them. But I, again, contradiction. A lot of people have misconceptions about people like us in our business. Um, they kind of think, you know, well, you're young, you're free, you're single, you know, you're not bad looking. Um, you have a few bob in your pocket you have a little bit of swaz about you and so therefore you you know you'd be fighting them off with a stick but I was never a player in that sense I was never interested in casual sex I also have a thing to be in a an intimate relationship which obviously involves sex I think that's a very precious important thing I don't think it should be thought of as a notch on your gun handle I don't think it's something that should be just wasted or thrown away I think it should be done with somebody you care about if you're going to be intimate as physically intimate as human beings can then you really should have something in common with that person mm. I liked to know the person I was going to sleep with It's a meeting of minds and souls Yeah and I had to care but well, there had to be somebody yeah, this yeah. is like yeah. and it wasn't even so much you know I want to be sure of the person I just I want to be comfortable and in other words I, I had to get to know them it just meant something more to me the thing is, as well, I think it's hard for people listening now. We grew up with very yeah. strange messages around intimacy and sex and guilt in there. And yeah. just we really in Catholic Ireland, there's a very, very strange relationship that we could spend a whole episode sort of <laughs> teasing apart. Do you know what it is? I mean, I always thought that if you were lucky enough to get to the point where uh, some girl, some woman um, was prepared to go to bed with you, and do that with you, then you should treat it with respect. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. Uh, and that it was something to be enjoyed. I, for some reason or other, I got very early on that the better you knew somebody, the, the better, better the sex, the better it was likely to be. Yeah, I had had my more than my fair share of 
knee trembling fumblings in the back of you know yeah. band vans and things like that. And it's just, oh, God. Yeah, oh, yeah. God, just yeah, can't yeah. be bothered with this. It's just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, it seemed to be, this is a gift. You know what? Sex is great. It's brilliant. It's wonderful. Yeah. You know what? Do it right. Do it with somebody you like and yeah. with somebody who likes you. And then it'll be really great. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Audrey and, and, and you are still together and you have four children? Four, yeah. So how <coughs> has this last couple of months been for Audrey and the kids with with you? Uh, How scary for your daughter and your son to have sort of yeah, been there in that the, moment again do you know what it's a bit like grief it's it's a huge upheaval for a month or six weeks and then life goes back to normal <laughs> and it's like yeah 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 okay yeah 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 Let's, oh what he's talking yeah. about the stroke again yeah 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 how, long are, you, how long are you going to uh, you know milk yeah. that one for um, there are do notable you, differences in for example my energy levels so I will get up whatever it is six seven o'clock in the morning have breakfast pot around the house tell you up the kitchen um and then I may feel I need to go back to bed. No, I, that was not something I would ever have done before. But I think you need to answer that. You are still very, very, in terms of time since yeah. you had this, that my concern for you is that because you are such a high achiever, someone who likes to work really hard, someone who will always push yourself, that you won't hear what your body oh, no, is telling I, I have you. To, I have you to. have to listen. Have you to. have to take that rest if your body needs rest because your brain is trying to recover and, and cope and it yeah. will continue. You see, the thing is, if you do listen and live that brain healthy life, your brain will recover. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But it just takes time and you do have to do those. Be patient. Well, no, yeah, but I, no, be patient. I, I, I would I, imagine I, it's hard for you to be patient. But It would be hard for me to be patient. Yeah. I am listening because I have no choice. Good Friday and Easter Monday, I did my first gigs, which considering the event was the 8th of January, to get back on the horse and, and stay on it effectively three months later. That's pretty good going. But, and there were short shows and, and easy bank holiday um, shows tend to have a slightly different flavour. They're, yeah. they're not as um, hard edges, not as intense. Um, so it should have been a dottle. It has, where where are we now? Where Oh yeah, that was so that was last Monday week, right? It was Thursday by the time I was right after that. Yeah. I just basically slept for the three days, went home, slept yeah. for two, three days. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, hang on a second here. That's, I mean, now you put the prep work into it and all the rest of it, it ends up being a long day. And I also had, a, as it happened, I had a brain scan on that Monday morning as well, early. So it was a long day, but it shouldn't have taken me three, four days No, it does. It's, it's not, it but shouldn't it does. have. It does. So, it does. And I think what people don't realise and forget, because... Our brain is so brilliant that you do not even notice what it's doing until it struggles or, it, you know, yeah. it can't. And doing something like a radio show is really highly cognitively demanding. It's using that thinking part of your brain, which uses up a huge amount of energy yeah. and resources. And that is exhausting on a brain that is still trying to recover Heal itself. Heal itself. So it's a mental exhaustion rather than a physical exhaustion. And you have to rest. And I think really, again, like you did when you were in working in Ireland AM, you have to manage your sleep is critical. And you can do what I call, you know, preemptive naps, you know, have a nap before you go on the show, as well as that sort of sleep afterwards. Obviously, you 
faced, you know, with Anne's death, you already had this huge life changing experience that I'm sure changes your perspective and view on life. Has your own experience in January got you thinking differently or? Yeah, it's made things more urgent in that I'm acutely aware now of the fact that I might not have as much time as I thought or actually it's not that I've ever thought about it really I never kind of thought oh right I'll get to 65 and I'll do this I'll get to 70 and I'll do that I'll just keep going on yeah. um, and I'll keep going on until the job at hand is done and the job at hand is raising them getting them an education you know putting them in a position to stand on their own two feet and then go out and make their own way mm-hmm. in the world and once they're armed and equipped to do that well then that job is done and then it's really about myself and Audrey and, you know, what pasture we want to spend our retirement or our later years in. But, I mean, I never thought of stopping working. I mm. can't imagine doing that. Now, it may very well have stopped at this stage for all I know. Um, I don't know what kind of demand there is for people like me anymore. We live in an increasingly ageist society anyway. Yeah. But the thing is, there's people like us ageing together. So we're still an audience if that's the way, you know. Well, hopefully that will be the case and I'll find my forum. I I don't know whether there's a demand there for me or not. I think it would be a waste to take all this experience and, you know, insight and knowledge and having been around the block several. You know, it's a bit like the old thing of when you're down in the deep, dark hole, you want somebody who's been down there to show you the way out, right? And that you can apply that to almost any aspect and facet of life. And I know each generation has to make its own mistakes and learn how things work for itself. But, you know... Wisdom. We have to value wisdom and experience. We know how to work smart. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, and, you know, if we can make it so that you work smart rather than work harder, why wouldn't you choose that? See, I think as well, though... Pass it on. You pay it forward. Give it back. Yeah, I mean, because, by the way, there's challenges coming up now, Sabina, that no generation has faced before. I mean, we were talking about social media and what that's going to do. I can't point to anything or pinpoint anything in human history that would be a correlation or an equivalent of that, Mm. where people's (laughs) brains are being rewired by gadgetry and devices. We've never faced that before because we've never had this level of technology. So what that will do to people and how they will cope with it They'll be facing it for the first time, but at least people who've been around the block a few times will have some reference points or frames of reference in their life that will go, well, okay, we haven't faced this before, but we face something similar. And maybe if we approach it in the same way, we, you know, we may have the basis of a root map for them. But to just discard us, um, throw us on the slag heap or the scrap heap or whatever, just you're too old or you don't get it or, um, yeah, the wisdom, the knowledge, the yeah, experience. Yeah, no, and I, you know what? The thing is, I think we can be ageist the other way. And I I think a lot of us and society and reporting can describe all young people as if they're all the same and as if they're all vacuous and as if they're all, you know, looking for, because that's what social media shows and looks and people doing makeup every day on, on Instagram and all those kind of things. But yes, and some people are just drawn to that, but equally... There's the same hum- human beings that we were there who are hungry for knowledge. Human nature and, and hasn't changed that much. Yeah, no, it hasn't. And I'm always surprised at the age profile of the audience for this podcast. It's really quite young. 24 to 34 is the majority of my listeners. And I have older listeners too, which is great. Yeah. I think people are interested in other humans and I wouldn't write everybody off and do that sort of blanket well, thing. Uh, human nature hasn't changed. 
our human beings don't change. The problems they have to face change. And the generation coming up, of which my kids are pretty representative, are having to deal with stuff the like of which we never did mm. um, and encountering problems. But they're also, whereas maybe my generation would have thought, ah, anxiety, worry, depression, that's all. Yeah. Just stiff upper lip, get on, stick a blaster on us, you'll be fine. They're aware actually of the damage, the implication, the long-term effects of, of all of that. And they're more aware and concentrating on it and focusing on it now in a way that we never did, in a way that we, a lot of us, didn't actually be, even begin to understand we needed to do until we got into mature middle age. So they're much more attuned to that. And because they've seen the previous generations not deal with it properly, there is, I think, on their part, a tendency to write off what experience we may have even if it took us longer to get to that point than it did then. I think we can learn both directions. I think that's the thing, you know, and I think that's why we need much more interaction between and across generations that other societies still have or that we used to have when we lived sort of in a a communal way where we all learn from each other. We watch what they're doing and uh, vice versa. One last thing I want to ask you before I'll ask you for your tip. I recently interviewed Tom Dunn, Mm -hmm. who almost died. He had life-saving surgery surgery on his heart. His kidneys failed. He was in ICU. He is further along his journey than you are. That's kind of two years ago. And I can't remember exact dates. He remembers all the dates exactly. But he has felt emotional in a way that he's never felt before. Mm. In that when good things happen, he describes in one of the episodes, you know, when his daughter takes hold of his hand, there's no greater feeling in the world than that. And then he straight away goes, but this isn't going to last. I'm going to die and cries. And then we moved on, you know, and he was talking about that he feels he has post-traumatic stress. And part of his rehab after a surgery was, first of all, the physical rehab. But then he was meant to have sessions with a psychologist. But COVID intervened a year ago. And so he kind of hasn't had those. I'm, I'm very interested to know, have you felt emotional change and do you feel any sort of post-trauma stress or change? I mean, everybody is different. So, you know. Yeah, I, well, I was freaked out about it. Completely freaked out about it. Actually, the further away from the event I got, the more freaked out about mm. it I did because the, the kind of, the ripples of it, I was beginning to kind of map the ripples and where it was going in all sorts of different areas of, of my life. Um, my immediate concerns were work, finance, um, providing for a future. I have no real control over that. COVID has robbed us all of that. Yeah, Particularly yeah. if you're in the gig economy, which I am, you have no idea yeah. when the phone's going to ring, if it's going to ring. You just have to hope it rings and then when you get the chance, you go and do the best you can and based on that, it'll ring again. But of course, when you have a brain injury and the possible perception that you may have been damaged by that, yes. you wonder whether people will take a risk on you. So I've concentrated an awful lot on proving or showing to people, proving to myself, proving to anybody who might be um, interested in employing me that I can still function at that level and in a way that they would expect of me. So now I've rolled that dice. Yeah. And I have to wait and see, you know, what comes up. Um, But again, you have the spectre of COVID, which has completely altered our business. Totally altered our business. Everybody's, yeah. Nobody's moving, nobody's going anywhere, nobody's taking any chances. Um, There's no grapevine. 
you can't come up with an idea and go and pitch it to somebody because yeah. there's nobody in an office to go and, and talk no to. And there's no networking. No networking. Not at events because you know things yeah. come from that. You go to something and <clears> someone <throat> has an idea. Oh, let's do that yeah. and we'll try that. So and, um, from that point of view, it's quite barren and a desert, which obviously has serious financial implications as well. So that's really where my focus has been on. And it's possibly not the right way to deal with this. Mm. But I've just gone, I've got to get back on that horse as fast as I possibly can. As fast as my body and my brain will allow me to do that and prove to people that I still have something that they might be interested in buying or employing. So that really has been where my concentration is on. The other ripples in terms of me personally would be that the relationship with the family has all been fine. You know, they're very good. They know if I'm tired or if I'm asleep, they know there's something wrong. They know he's tired. That never happens with him, right? So they just let me alone and I'll come back when I'm ready. Uh, One of the things I've got quite emotional about privately is the sense of diminishment, physical diminishment. I mean, six months ago, I was in a gym and I was benching, Mm. having weights, strong. Yeah, yeah. uh, And I could do two hours of that. Now, if I go for a shower, I have to go for a lie down afterwards. Yeah. If I go for a walk, I'll have to go for a lie down afterwards. I'm having, you know, perfectly enjoyable conversation stroke interview with you for an hour or whatever it is I'll go and have a lie down yeah. afterwards the sense of the loss of power the loss of physical capacity and capability the fact that I'm now officially old whether I like it or not oh well I feel old now which yeah. I hadn't done three four five six months ago now I do and I, I have to be careful I mean give you a very simple example right I've always had incredibly strong hands incredibly strong hands so if there's a really stiff yeah. lid on a jar. You're the kind of man even, I need in well, my house. I can never open any jars. I have very weak hands. Yeah, I have a six foot two inch, like 17, 18 stone son who's built like a bear. And another one is Jim, right? But it would be given to me because he has hands like yeah, grips. Yeah. They don't give it to me anymore. Right. You know, stuff like that. Okay. It's a tiny little thing, right? Can, but it's just like, don't give it to him because, you know. Can I just say something to you to put it in perspective? There are hundreds of thousands of people around the globe at the moment who are experiencing the exact same thing you're experiencing as a consequence of having had COVID. Yeah. They are having long COVID. They are struggling with this fatigue, both a physical and a mental fatigue. That is quite normal after any sort of viral illness or trauma to the brain or the body. Yeah. I think if you recontextualize it and not see it as being something to do with age and something permanent rather than your body Mm. recovering from a stress, because stress was first studied in the context of illness. We tend to see stress as a psychological thing, Mm. but the stress response was first studied. Illness and disease are a stressor on the body. and. Also, the body has just fought for its life and survived and it really needs time to kind of come back. And I honestly think if you reframe it that way and see it as a journey back to health, as opposed to the start of a downhill trajectory, I think that's different. And I think given sort of where it was, and I'm not a medical doctor, but the progress you've made and all that sorts of things, I think that needs just a psychological reframing in your head. And you might find... Well, look, regardless of the stroke, the thing about age, being a certain age, getting to a certain point where the end of AM 
was quite interesting in that in our business, if you aren't delivering the numbers, we can all read charts, we can all read stats and ratings. You know, you kind of go, oh, they're going the wrong way. This won't, because it's a business. And if you're not doing the business, then people will change you or they'll make a change or they'll either change the gig or they'll change you or either way you move on. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you're finished, but you go on to somewhere else. Yeah, where yeah. Whatever it is you bring to the party is of use there. The thing that was very hard for me to deal with with AM was is that so this uh, is Ireland AM yeah, the show that you worked yeah. on in the morning time show for <clears> 20 years the thing that was really hard for me to get my head around was is that we were doing best numbers and best figures mm. we were at an all time high it was an institution it had stitched itself into the psyche of, yeah, of, the, um, of, and of the into nation, people's all, yeah. you're, you've succeeded if you are part of someone's morning routine there you go that is success with and breakfast you're TV you're kind of going what's wrong and it's ironic in hindsight, in hindsight, it's always 20, 20, as you know, but in hindsight, I think we were kind of at the height of our powers and mm. it, it was going great guns. And then they suddenly decided they needed to change. Now, I completely understand why what they were doing is they were building for the future. They were going, yeah, yeah, yeah. this can't ask these people to keep going much longer. Yeah. But it was just, I looked like the father of the women I was supposed to be. Mm. Well, that's not unusual on the media. <laughs> no, it's not. And that's okay. Uh, and uh, you, I, mean, I feel for women, you know, I mean, as you get older, well, you become more invisible. there's two ways of looking at that. Why not have a woman of my age demographic? But unfortunately, women get to a certain age and then they're no longer seem to be welcome on No, them. not visible at all. And it's a gig that I would love to do. I would love to do that kind of lifestyle yeah. TV stuff and feel that I would be perfectly capable. And I think also it's something that when you are that bit older, you can make a better interviewer, just even as a consequence of life experiences. You can think of different questions, do whatever. But so to go back to your original point about age, that single event was the thing that made me feel Oh, well, time's up. Scrappy, mm. you know. I'm at the height of my powers. I know how to do what I do better than I've ever known yeah. before. I now know how to work smarter. Yeah. And I have the experience to deal with almost any situation that will get thrown at me. In fact, pretty much. There's, there's very little I haven't dealt with already. Yeah. And I haven't got an insight into it. And by the way, I haven't lost my enthusiasm for it. I'm still meeting somebody new every day and I'm still learning something new every day. And I'm still excited. And you are still young in terms of our life trajectory. One more thing before you go. Hmm. Piece of advice to people for surviving and thriving in life. Um, Well, they come back to the two mantras, which are Dom Spiro Sparrow, while you breathe, you hope. So you never, ever give up because you never, never know what's around the corner. And by the way, that, that cuts both ways, both good and bad. A lot of us go through life, drift through it or stumble through it or amble through it or whatever without being aware that there can be something awful and or wonderful around the corner. Mm. We're never prepared, I think, for the best and the worst of things that can happen to Mm. us. Now, is that part of the human condition? I don't know. But it never ceases to amaze me how surprised people are when something awful happens Mm. and when something brilliant happens. Never seem to be prepared for it. You never, people don't seem to have, I don't know whether there's a sat down and daydream their way into that possibility. Now, people say, oh, you can't be catastrophizing. There's no way to live your life. But equally well, if you're constantly planning on what you do if you won the lottery, then you're living in a fantasy yeah, world, yeah. you know. But that's where you get your money's worth out of doing a lottery. Well, it's exactly. imagining what you'll do with the money. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I just, I don't know that daydreams, either foreboding or fantasizing daydreams are bad for you. Mm -hmm. 
But human beings never seem to me to be prepared for the best and worst that life can throw at them. Mm. Now, maybe that's one of the reasons why when life does throw something awful or something great at them, that the way human beings have to instinctively react is what makes them so wonderful. Maybe that's why we're constantly surprised by them, mm. that they're not prepared for the shit that life throws at them, but still they deal with it in extraordinary ways. Well, we're adaptable. The, the yeah. brain adapts and changes. That's the, the fantastic quality of the brain, that neuroplasticity is yeah. that it can change with learning and experience. And that's what it is. But ultimately, while you have a breath left in your body, don't give up. And then just as a way of living your life, try. Not possible for everybody, right? but try and find something that you love to do. Mm. Do it really, really well. And if you do it well, then stuff will follow as yeah. a result of that. And again, as my grandfather, my father used to say, don't worry about being popular, worry about being good. Because if you're good, you will always work. People will always want to work yeah. with good. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not just professionally, that's also in terms of your personal dealings with people as well. Don't be a pleaser. Please the people that matter, but don't be trying to please don't. everybody. Because you can't please everybody. No. You know? And again... Find people who are worthy of your love and your affection and your trust. Now, people say, oh, that's easy to say. Well, no, we'll all have to get bitten by that. But, but find people who have proved that they're worthy of respect, who are good people, who are good at what they do, who are dedicated, who put important things first, you know, not material things. And if you can make your way in their circle or get those people to like and respect you, then you've got good frames of reference. You've got mm. good landmarks, emotional landmarks to aim for. And, you know, trite and cliched as it sounds, you know, in a world where you can be anything, just be kind. Wise words from Mark. And of course, kindness has many health benefits. And I'll share a link to an episode I did exploring those benefits in the show notes. Don't forget to check out the new Superbrain blog for additional bonus recordings. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 